Hello, happy fall to you. This is Keith Thews, and you're listening to Michigan Speak Out for Hump Day, Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. How are you doing out there? It is rainy, it is gloomy. We'll be talking history coming at you, but first, we got News Nation to get you started on today's broadcast. I'm back with more show. News Nation This Hour, I'm Vic Vaughn. Scuba dive teams have been called to an alligator-infested swampy wildlife area in Sarasota County, Florida. They're trying to find Brian Laundrie. He's a person of interest in the killing of his girlfriend, YouTube travel vlogger Gabby Petito. The U.S. is now committed to donating more COVID-19 vaccines to low-income nations than donations from all other nations combined. President Biden doubled it this morning. As we're doing that, we need other high-income countries to deliver on their own ambitious vaccine donations and pledges. From the White House, the U.S. will now purchase another 500 million Pfizer doses. That's now over 1 billion to be shared by this time next year. The CDC is hearing debate today on which Americans should get a COVID-19 booster shot. Regulators at the FDA haven't yet decided. Last week, they drastically scaled back the president's plans of boosters for all vaccinated Americans, instead backing them only for seniors and the immunocompromised. Head of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has ordered the U.S. Justice Department to investigate Border Patrol agents recently seen on horseback in Texas blocking Haitians who were illegally crossing from Mexico. The facts will drive the actions that we take. We ourselves will pull no punches. It follows criticism from Democrats in Washington over the aggressiveness of the agent's tactics. A judge in San Luis Obispo, California, has ordered 44-year-old Paul Flores to stand trial for the murder of Kristen Smart. He was the last person she was seen alive with before disappearing from a college campus 25 years ago. They were classmates at California Polytech. His dad's charged with accessory. The United Nations World Health Organization today updated its air quality guidelines for the first time in 15 years. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus says it sets the bar higher. These new guidelines will have major implications for public health. They provide a practical tool for improving air quality around the world. The changes lower concentrations on pollutants. They're not legally binding. They're more of a reference for policymakers. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at NewsNationNow.com and the News Nation Now app. I'm Vic Vaughn. And that's the news from News Nation. You're tuned into Michigan Speak Out on SME Community Radio. How is it going out there? A little bit gloomy, but we've made it to fall at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Fall began all across the world. So, did you bundle up? Did you get the long sleeves out? I know I had to put the long sleeves on all day today at work. There was times it got nippy and there were other times it was pretty muggy and I wanted to take that hoodie of mine off, but I elected to keep it on. And uh, guess what they're saying on the news today? Tomorrow, make sure you're definitely bundled up in the morning because of the lows as well as the, the wind chill. We're gonna talk about wind chill, oh my gosh. They're talking potential for wind chill tomorrow with the temperatures in the 50s, rain, winds gusting up to 20, upper 30s wind chill. Yes, and <coughs> upper 30s wind chill. So you need to be prepared for that. But we only got one more day of this, and then it's going to get better. It'll be back in the 70s on Friday, but we still got to deal with a lot more rain and the potential for heavy rain tonight oh my gosh well yesterday we didn't have a show I was on the phone with John Schaefer preparing for the improvements that we at SME Community Radio are going to be bringing to you on October the 1st yes SME Community Radio is going to be making some substantial improvements in our programming on the first of the month I cannot tell you all the details but as you can see Another clue is the picture that you see on your podcast screen. Yes, I, I can't tell you much more, but that will be used 
come October the 1st. So we're giving you a few clues. My show isn't going away anywhere. And Ron Varash isn't going away anywhere. And our staff isn't going away anywhere. But things are going to be improving. And you're going to like what's going to be happening October the 1st. So get ready for that. I didn't have any interviews today. I'm hoping to talk to a couple of people um, in the coming couple of days. And definitely Ron Varash is one of them on Friday for race preview for the weekend. So I'm going to be going back into history. The good, the bad, and the ugly. First, we're going to be talking about the bad. Did you know that in 1983, and the anniversary is this weekend, we as a country, we humans as a planet, almost bit the dust in multiple nuclear fireballs. Yes, I'm talking about the 26th, 1983 in September. We, across the world, almost went up into multiple nuclear fireballs. Yes, but one individual in the Soviet Union, yes, that's what Russia used to be known as from the 19, uh, late 1900s, the time of the Spanish flu, until 1991, yes. We're talking about the Soviet Union and one military man who made common sense decision and saved the world from a very horrific nuclear holocaust. And so we have a couple of history things for you. One is from the History Channel, the audio off of it from YouTube. The other one is from an alternate historian of what would have happened if he wasn't there to save the planet by common sense. And then we're going to go from doom and gloom and amen to that to happy times talking about history again but we're going to be talking about a place where the IUSB dorms are at used to have a racetrack yes Ron did talk about that a few weeks ago um, in one of his shows yes Playland Park you're like where in the heck was that well we're going to be talking about it and talking about a ladies baseball team as well so that's coming up we have a new episode from Pastor Joel and those of you in connection with our story of Mr. Petrov in the Soviet Union, now Russia if you can't stand CNN now I watch it, yes, I don't mind but there's a lot of you who are conservatives and you say can't stand CNN, get it off the air keep it on Fox, Newsmax etc, etc, etc I have something that's going to make you smile the final recording ever to be played on CNN originally recorded yes, originally recorded planned for by CNN by Mr. Ted Turner himself yes, I'm talking about yes, I'm talking about Jane Fonda's husband, Ted Turner the founder of CNN had commissioned two things to be recorded number one to play at the beginning of CNN in 1980, the American National Anthem by a military band. And that same military band was to play the final song we're going to play for you, the actual audio of it. Yes, I also got that from YouTube. To be played in the event of Doomsday on CNN. So in our connection with keeping the theme of remembering the night the world was saved by Mr. Petrov, we are going to play you the audio of the video to be played, the last thing anybody would hear or see, etc. on CNN to wrap up our show today. So, let's sit back, relax, prepare for history. Enjoy fall! It's here! Bundle up! You're listening to Michiana Speak Out on SME Community Radio. It's me, the rock t-shirt in the back of your closet. Wow.
remember? You crowd surfed in me, man. But you haven't worn me in like forever. I get it, you're retired. But I still got some rock left in me. So take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. In early 1983, Stanislav Petrov was a lieutenant colonel for the Soviet Strategic Rocket Forces, specializing in the development of a satellite nuclear warning system engineered to stop a U.S. first strike. After graduating, he was sent to a new early warning facility, Serpikov 15, near Moscow. When we arrived, there were only several houses. Nobody knew anything. There was nothing. We had to start everything from scratch. We worked at our main institution, which had developed the warning system, Kometa. This is quite a complicated space system. The satellite would orbit. It would cover the missile threat region of the United States of America. The new Russian warning system was composed of nine satellites that had a view of the Earth's surface over America. Any launch from there should have been detected quickly by observing the rocket plumes over the horizon, or so went the Russian theory. One entire wall was taken up by a reconnaissance display that depicted the map of the globe and the territory of the U.S. Their rocket ranges were marked there. There were exactly 1,000 rockets on six bases. On the evening of the 29th of September, 1983, Colonel Petrov took over the command of Serpikov-15 as the officer on duty. It was normal routine work. Time was passing by. At around 10 p.m., we were finished with our tea and food. Time was approaching when the spacecraft came into orbit. All was going well. We were prepared just in case. And this just in case happened. Colonel Petrov had received a signal confirming an American nuclear attack. There was a big overhead display with huge letters, like a wall banner at my eye level. Start. The siren howled. The report started coming in about the launching of a ballistic rocket from the United States of America. The first reaction was shock. Something that we should have been ready for had actually happened. There was a status panel in front of me, and on the left, one rocket range in the U.S. was lit up. Next to it, there was a number one, one launching rocket. The probability indicated was the highest possible. The Soviet early warning computer had to go through 30 levels of security checks before it confirmed an actual missile launch. The team scrambled to check the authenticity of the signal. They had only 28 minutes until the impact. I started giving commands, everyone in place, monitor all functions, do this and that, according to instructions. Everything pointed to a yes except for one thing. The launch was not confirmed visually. 30 levels of defense. To get through them was serious. Because of the lack of visual confirmation, Petrov decided to wait before he informed the high military command of what was happening. As I was the first source of this information, the danger was that as soon as I made a decision that this rocket is real, the rest of the chain of command could have been hypnotized by my conclusions. It is like the rule of roosters in a chicken coop. The first rooster starts to crow, and the rest follow it throughout the whole village. Petrov was unable to find any faults in the system. The situation grew worse. Another alarm came on. The system showed another rocket, then a third, fourth, fifth, all within five minutes. So there is a rocket attack sign on the overhead displays now. Petrov needed to make a decision, one of history's most important. 
был сбит корейский дроп. Принял по прошествии 10 минут Petrov was made into a scapegoat. He was eventually forced into early retirement. In January 2006, Petrov was honored at a ceremony at the United Nations headquarters. In the Western press, he became known as the man who saved the world. Hello everyone, I'm Matt Mitrovich, the alternate historian. I originally planned to ask a different what-if question today, but instead, I'm going to honor someone who saved the world. On September 18, 2017, it was reported that Stanislav Petrov had passed away in May. Now, some of you may be asking, who the hell is Stanislav Petrov, and why should I care that he died? Well, I'm here to tell you why you should care. On September 26, 1983, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was working at a missile detection bunker south of Moscow in the Soviet Union. His computer alerted him that the United States had launched five nuclear missiles at the USSR. Petrov, however, thought this was a false alarm, as it had always been assumed that any first strike by the Americans would involve hundreds of missiles instead of just five. Plus, he knew the system he was using was highly unreliable. Thus, Petrov, being one of the only civilian educated officers on duty that night, chose not to notify his superiors, which meant he would be disobeying a direct order. Lucky for him, and us, it was eventually confirmed that a glitch in the system had caused a false alarm. What is significant about Petrov's decision is just how likely nuclear war could have broken out in 1983. Tensions between the Americans and Soviets were at an all-time high due to Korean Airlines Flight 7 being shot down on September 1st after it had crossed into Soviet airspace, killing everyone on board, including a U.S. congressman. On top of that, many Soviet officials feared an American first strike was likely. This belief was caused in part because of then-President Ronald Reagan's plans to deploy Pershing II nuclear missiles to West Germany and the announcement of Strategic Defense Initiative, which called for nuclear weapons to be put in orbit. The Soviets, however, were already jittery about the Americans before these announcements were made. In 1981, then-General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev and KGB Chairman Yuri Andropov, who would later succeed Brezhnev as General Secretary in 1982, announced a secret American nuclear attack on the USSR was imminent to high-ranking KGB officials. Thus, we can assume the Soviets would be quick to retaliate at any sign of an attack. So as you can see, Petrov made the right call and prevented World War III from starting. Although initially praised by his superiors, Petrov was never officially commended, as it would embarrass powerful Soviet leaders and scientists who had championed the early warning system. Instead, Petrov was reassigned to a less glamorous post and eventually took an early retirement. The rest of the world, however, wouldn't even learn about Petrov's quick thinking until after the fall of the Soviet Union. But we could have lost so much, and to prove it, we need to ask ourselves the question, what if Petrov wasn't there? What would happen next? To begin, let's assume someone else was on duty that night, someone less educated and more prone to just following orders. Once the alert was made, they would have immediately notified their superiors. Now, presumably, said superiors could have come to the same conclusion that Petrov did, but given Andropov's distrust of Americans, it's possible he would have launched a full retaliatory strike at the United States and their allies. Perhaps by the time the Soviet missiles won the air, the glitch may have been discovered, but by then, it would be too late. America's own early warning system would have caught the nuclear strike inbound. It would have launched their own arsenal. World War III would have begun. Determining which places would be nuke is difficult, since it's not like the Americans and Soviets published any maps with X's saying bomb goes here, but we can still make some educated guesses. For example, priority targets would likely be missile silos and military bases, since both sides would hope to knock out the other's ability to wage war. 
After that, targets would include centers of government, transportation and communication hubs, manufacturing, industrial, technology, and financial centers, locations of oil refineries, power plants, and chemical plants, and major ports and airfields. Since large cities tend to have one, if not more, of those things, the civilian death toll would be extremely high once the bombs started falling. I mean, just look at the number of strikes the Chicago area could have received according to this map. Now, I wasn't born in 1983. My parents were alive and living there at the time. I doubt they would have survived that quagmire, and thus, no alternate historian. The allies of the United States and the Soviet Union would also be targeted. NATO and Warsaw Pact members, plus any other country strongly allied with either superpower, like the Koreas, Japan, Taiwan, Cuba, and others, would suffer nuclear bombings. Since Britain and France had their own nuclear arsenals, they too would have launched them at the Soviets, causing even more damage. Thus, much of North America and Eurasia would be devastated, although some regions might avoid being targeted, including neutral nations like Switzerland and Yugoslavia. I would even argue that Berlin might survive due to the large number of personnel and assets both sides had in the city, which they would not want destroyed in friendly fire. Although, a more controversial argument to make is that China would also be targeted by the Soviets. Although both were communist countries, relations between the Soviets and the Chinese deteriorated following the death of Stalin as both countries vied to be the ideological leader of the communist world. Things got so bad that they fought a series of border skirmishes in the late 60s that almost ended in nuclear war. Presumably, the Soviet leadership would fear that even if they won a nuclear war against the U.S., they would be too weak to defend themselves from an aggressive China. Thus, for their own safety, China would need to be taken out too, although China would presumably use their own nuclear weapons on the Soviets as well. So the world went and blew itself up. But what happens on Doomsday Plus One? To sum up, chaos. Millions would die from the blast themselves. Anyone left alive near the blast areas would likely die from any injuries they sustained, since emergency services would be either overwhelmed or non-existent. More would die from fires raging out of control with no one around to put them out. As his days went on, other issues would arise, such as radiation sickness and starvation. In the years to come, people would also be at greater risk of getting cancer, and birth rates would drop significantly. Famine would be a serious issue across the entire world. Fallout spread by the winds would even impact areas away from any strikes. Acres of farmland, including much of America's Corn Belt, would be useless, causing widespread famine. Nuclear winter caused by all the crap kicked in the air that blocks the sunlight would lead to milder summers and colder winters across the earth, which would only make the global famine worse. Furthermore, the war in its aftermath would create the greatest refugee crisis of all time. Meanwhile, the global economy would quickly collapse as the world's developed nations are flattened. People would fight over what few resources were left in the affected areas, breaking down law and order even further. It's hard to determine which nations survived World War III. Most countries have plans on what to do if such a war breaks out, but planning for it is a lot different than actually trying to survive it. For example, the U.S. government might not have enough time to evacuate Washington once everyone became aware the Soviet strike was incoming. Thus, on September 27th, America could wake up with their major cities burning and no federal government to call for help. It's difficult to speculate on what would happen next, but the worst-case scenario could involve competing factions claiming to be the federal government fighting amongst themselves along with any state governments or opportunistic warlords deciding it's better to go it alone. That said, I don't foresee the Soviet Union doing much better. Despite having a head start on getting out of Moscow, the USSR would only be a few years in our timeline away from their own collapse. A nuclear war would easily speed that process along, regardless of how many of their leaders survive. Outside of the superpowers, we would see military dictatorships come to power, or governments instituting emergency measures as the targeted nations try to deal with the war through the most effective and brutal means possible. Perhaps you might see regions with a large minority population make a break for it in the chaos, causing the map of the world to be vastly different than it is today. Just like this map from the 1983 Doomsday Collaborative Timeline, which follows the same point of divergence as this video. Even nations that avoided nuclear strikes would still have to deal with the larger issues stemming from the conflicts, such as the spread of radiation, the nuclear winter, the refugee crisis, and the collapse of the global economy. New conflicts may even break out without the superpowers around to sit on their antagonists. For example, Israel being a close ally of the United States may have suffered attacks by the Soviet Union, and neighboring Arab states may take advantage of that fact to invade and destroy Israel once and for all. Thus, Israel may carry out the Samson option and launch their own nuclear arsenal against their enemies across the Middle East, spreading nuclear destruction to another region of the globe. Meanwhile, most African nations may avoid being directly targeted during the war, but the end of foreign aid and the collapse of the global economy could cause anarchy to spread across the continent, and it would take decades for things to stabilize. South Africa, which would still be in the midst of apartheid in 1983, might fall apart in a bloody racial civil war. Still, it is not all doom and gloom. Regions like South America, South Asia, and Oceania might be able to ride out the worst of World War III relatively intact. 
It's here in the post-war world that the political and economic centers of power would shift. Countries like Brazil and India would be well-placed to fill the power vacuum left by the burnt-out superpowers and could provide the industry and capital necessary to begin the laborious task of rebuilding the world. While they might not be able to reject military power the way the former superpowers did before the war, they could still hopefully begin the process of leading the world out of the ruin by the present day. Or then again, maybe not. We probably will never know exactly what would happen if nuclear war broke out in 1983. But you know what? That's a good thing. Stanislav Petrov isn't a household name, which in my humble opinion is a damn shame. Petrov is a good example of a person who doesn't simply follow orders without question. He made a difficult decision at great cost to his own career, and in the end probably saved millions of lives. If we ever found ourselves on the brink of nuclear war again, I would hope we would have the courage to do the right thing like Petrov did. Rest in peace, Stanislav Petrov. We'll keep an eye on the world for you. Well, that is all I have to say in the subject. If you like what I do, please comment, subscribe, share this video, support me on Patreon. Plus, stay tuned to After the Credits to find out who won my latest book giveaway. I'm Matt Mitrovich, the alternate historian. Bye. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Mark M. Johnson Show. Before we get this episode started, I wanted to take the time uh, to acknowledge everybody that have been supporting us. Thank you so much for your support and following the show. And I also wanted to take the time to remind everybody that we are really, really trying to support the local artists and musicians in the area. So if you are one or if you know somebody that would like to come onto the set and perform or if they have performances they'd like to share with us, we'd love to help promote your band and spread uh, your choice music to everybody else. So... Let me know. Contact me on social media, any of our social media platforms. Email will probably be best. That is markmjohnsonshow at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Twitter and, of course, on Facebook as well. Either give my accounts, my personal account, or you can contact us on the show's accounts. Either way, try to track us down. You'll find us, and we'd love to support you again. Enjoy the show. our tour here of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, past stadiums, old stadiums, what's left of them, how they've been preserved. We now move on to South Bend, Indiana, of course, home of the South Bend Blue Sox. Now, this one is another one I thought was really cool that was unfortunately not preserved very well in terms of the history. If you walk by it, you'll never know. You'll never know that the Blue Sox played there. You never knew the past of what actually was there. It's really cool. I mean, lots of places don't do this, but, you know, some do. In our last episode, we featured the Rockford Peaches. They preserved everything, and it took them a while to do that, too. It wasn't until 2010 before they got that park up and going and started preserving the legacy of the Rockford Peaches. So there's still time for the Blue Sox, and we actually were contacted by a group on Facebook, uh, the reunion of the um, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, uh, group that they have, and they said that there is something that's going to be put there. So that's good news, actually, for the Blue Sox and the legacy of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So hats off to you guys. Um, let me know when that's going to be. I didn't get a clear indication of exactly what day that was going to be, but thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, I got a lot a lot of people that were very interested in the pictures that we posted 
the before and after. I tried to get the first picture as well as I could in the second one uh, there of Betsy uh, Jochum that I, I couldn't quite get the, I guess, exact picture because I didn't try as well as the other one, but it's pretty close, so it's close as I could get. But the first one I tried to get it right dead on, I think I did. But anyway, you can't ever tell. We went at a really, really odd time. Uh, I think I found another video on YouTube where there was somebody who was searching for the old Playland Park. Playland Park, okay, was actually an amusement park before it was used by the girls, the Blue Sox. And there was amusement, there was roller coaster, you know, you name it. Ferris wheel, they had the whole works. And I guess, unfortunately, it was, like many good amusement parks, we have one in here, had one in here in Houston called Six Flags. All, thing, all, all good things must come to an end. And this one did. Uh, I believe it was in the early 60s that it came to an end, but finally... Playland Park didn't exist anymore. It became a golf course, but now it is home for the students. It's actually housing for Indiana University South Bend. You know, they put good use to it, obviously, but not preserving the fact of legacy where it was. They could at least have a plaque there, and they are getting one there, like I said, which is fantastic. So the Blue Sox, they played at Bendix Field from 1943 to 1945, home of the Bendix you know, company there. And then they moved to Playland for the remaining years, uh, 1946 through 1954. So they occupied Playland Park for majority of the time during their tenure. Uh, South Bend, just like the last team we covered, Rockford, the only two teams to stay in the league the entirety from 1943 to 1954. Uh, the Blue Sox, of those four original teams in 1943, were the final ones picked of those four teams to land a, uh, a team in the city of South Bend. Good choice. They kept it all the way through. They won two championships, made numerous playoff appearances, and a couple of notable players, Dottie Schroeder, who we, some believe, is based off the character Dottie Henson, who I thought it was based on another character. But this one, you look you look a little bit more into it, and it's, it's looking more like Dottie Schroeder's the one they were going for here uh, from Dottie Henson's character, which was played by Gina Davis in A League of Their Own. Uh, look like women, but play like men. This is what... This is what they had, a pretty girl that played her heart out. And she played all 12 years in the league, the only player to play all 12 years in the league. She was one, a part of the original uh, South Bend Blue Sox. So unfortunately, she didn't play here at Play Playland Park as a member of the Blue Sox. But she's a notable member of that team. Betsy Jochum did. Uh, she was an all-star uh, with the team. She played all five, or excuse me, from 1943 to 1948 with the team. Uh, she won a batting title in 1944, stole a record seven bases in a game, which is tied for the all-time record in the league. And she quit because she was traded to Peoria. Dedication to South Bend there, as one would say. Earned a master's degree, so she was able to go do her own thing. But we're going to take a look at this park now because I've been rambling on, and let's take a look finally at what is now Playland Park. And I'm going to show you I picked a tough time to go, but it's the only time I could go. Let's take a peek now. All right, so I'm going to zoom in here at the original grandstand, as you can see it, through the jungle that is now fenced off. There's Danielle as she was looking around. Danielle's actually the one that noticed it. We were driving around. I found some old cement, because it said it had pieces of the old grandstand or the old grandstand still up, and I just thought it was stuff that was hanging up. But it wasn't. It was actually, we just had to keep driving. She told me I want to keep driving around. I almost gave up on it. But we drove around the whole parking lot. I got out a few times, a few places to look. I'm telling you, this is covered by trees so well in the fence, and I'm not very observant. Thank goodness she is because she saw it and she's the one who pointed it out. And I was amazed what I saw. This is a huge grandstand, huge. 
And that's mainly because it, it wasn't meant for girls' baseball or baseball in general. It was actually a racetrack that was added in 1916. This park was originally a trolley park in 1880 uh, when it was formed. Uh, it was Springbrook Park, its original name, until it was renamed, I believe, in 1912. Something like that. And a racetrack was added in 1916. So as you take a look there at the Indiana University's dormitory. And this is a better look beyond the trees, bushes, whatever. Shrub. <laughs> and like I said, we went in the we went in the summer. If we went in the winter or even in the fall, you know, this wouldn't be so high and we'd be able to see a little bit a little bit better footage. But that is where the field was. And if anybody saw the picture that I'd posted, that's where I took it from, just beyond there. This was the front of it, and then this is to believe where home plate was around this area in particular. Now I mentioned how long it is because of the racetrack. Now the racetrack was all along there as well uh, before the girls started using it. So they just put good use to it. Uh, they had this long stand. You wouldn't see anything like that. Now they're all curved. They're not straight out like that. And they had a temporary wooden one along the side as they were easily able to get rid of that whenever it was no longer needed. But this is made of cement so that's why it still stands to this day. Nobody wants to pay the money to get rid of this, with good reason. And we saw that in a few places as well. And here's a closer look at the grandstand and its age and all its glory. Man, I love seeing this stuff. But it's just so hard to tell exactly what it is. Now, I'm going to get a better look from the top. See, I drove around just to see if I can get a better look. Um, before we left, and it wasn't really good. It's just because the time of the year. I'm telling you, if you try to go to this place in the winter, like I said, or somewhere where these leaves are not as blooming, then you'll be able to get a better look at this because it, even back there, can you see it? All the way in the back, that's where it is. There's a there's a place where you can park semi-trucks over there, and uh, that's where I went to go find it, and I had to pull back all these greenery just to <laughs> have a view through it. But some people have a video. There's another video on here I'm sure you could see. I'm not sure what that was, but I thought I'd zoom in on it just in case. But there's a place, or there's a spot here on uh, YouTube where somebody got a better look at it with the greens not so much in the way. So check that out if you can. Get a better look. But yeah, that's the field. You turn around, you look at the field. So this is another video, and I'm just trying to get the corner. That's the very, very corner, obviously, of where you believe the very center of home play. So you stand up there and you'll see home play. So this is me going forward into it. That's when I pulled back the shrubbery and I started looking here at exactly what was going on through there. I couldn't go left to right very well because that's the only hole I can dig. That is the very top of the grandstand. That's the best shot I can get for what it's worth. These these were high. If I would brought a ladder with me, maybe. But, you know, I'm just passing through hoping to see some stuff. Now that I have it, see, look at that. Look at that. That's This is me reaching at This is me pulling this as high as I can to try to get a good look for you guys. But I can't do it. It's, <laughs> it's just too much. Too much greenery. Too much going on there. Many branches and whatnot, so. So it's, uh, the legacy of it is still there. You can see that they can probably do something with this if they wanted to. I hope they do. I hope they do a little bit more than just a plaque, but a plaque would be a step in the right direction for sure. If anybody can check out that Rockford Peaches video that I had made before this one and see, I think, how it, an example of how it can be done or at least started to be done. But, you know, it's all up to a committee. It's up to the, the city of South Bend and whoever's in charge. You know, that it's, with this stuff comes money, and I, I realize that. So, obviously, then there's no pressure, but if anybody can try to help preserve this stuff it, it it's really cool and there's a reason we go to museums there's a reason we go to anything like this is so we can see the history of everything the original home plates as i've said in my past videos place those where they are that's cool enough i think 
the original home plate. This is the home of the South Bend Blue Sox in the parking lot there, somewhere. I don't know if you can possibly find that, but I don't know. Historians are pretty good at this stuff. And I had this entire time I've had nothing but trouble finding uh, good history on the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Pictures, uh, any information that's valid that can be used with good sources. It's It's been very difficult for me. And where others maybe have a better time looking, let me know. If you have any information, I'd love to share it and post it because these girls deserve the recognition for what they what they played for and what they did and what they're still doing. It's it's not only interesting to see this, I think it's also in a way it's good for the girls. It's very inspirational to see where they played and kind of pick up that. Because you know when you go places, you know who was there, you know what they did there, and it's inspiring. And I think this can inspire a lot of people if they can just see exactly, or they could just stand in the tracks, stand in the box, in the outfield, anything of where these great players once stood. But that was, you know, just a, a little bit of what Playland Park still has to offer. Uh, some other places I visited, they didn't even, I'm not even sure if it was the right areas that I went to. And I'll, I'll share that with you momentarily as well. A lot of cool events went down here. And I wanted to talk about them, but um, there's so many to list here, and I feel like I've missed over them, so I'll make sure that I put them in the video whenever we finish the editing and lay that in there for you as well so you can take a good look at that. But that'll do it for this one. Anybody has any more information, like I said, I've had some people tell me that they've played there before, played some softball games. Unfortunately, couldn't get any pictures of that. But if you come across any, let me know. I'd love to share them. I think this is really neat. And if you've played here, if you've had pictures here, you've standed, or you stood in history. And I'd love to see that too. So as the show continues on with its, I guess, kind of building the legacy of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the spirit, the ghosts that rise from these uh, uh, from these stadiums. Man, it's just so much of it. So please continue to look into the Mark M. Johnson Show. Uh, follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, Mark M. Johnson Show without the W. Ran out of characters. Uh, Facebook page with the W. Uh, guys, this is this is something I'm trying to get people to notice and pay attention to because a league of their own. It was a fantastic movie and a lot of people love it, but there's still not enough information about the All American Girls Professional Baseball League that I think there should be. So if you have anything, let me know once again, and stay tuned for the next episode. I'm glad to have you all along for the journey, and stay tuned. Let's talk about tackle football. I just learned about CTE, the brain disease caused by repeated hits to the head. The more years I play, the more I'm at risk. If you put me in tackle today. By the time I'm a senior in high school, I'll have played 13 years of tackle football. I could already have CTE. 
and it will continue to destroy my brain even after I stop playing. So by the time I'm your age, I could be fighting depression, struggling to keep my thoughts straight. I could become violent, even towards my own children. When I'm your age, what will matter to me is not my youth football career, but that like you, I'm a great parent and I can provide for my family. So please, keep me out of tackle football until I'm 14. Greetings, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. You've probably heard the phrase, money talks. Well, the Apostle James agrees. Listen to James chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yesterday we saw that James is bringing a lawsuit against those who are guilty of ill-gotten gain. Those who hoard earthly treasures at the expense of their fellow humans, they will stand trial. And James sets out as evidence all these possessions that the rich have been acquiring. As it turns out, in the final judgment, they're not very impressive. The riches have rotted. The gold and silver, it's rusty. The designer clothes in the closets they're moth-eaten. This mass of decay speaks volumes to the futility of amassing wealth, but then James takes them and puts them on the stand. Listen to verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Do you find this language to be striking? James says the wages that rich people kept back from their workers are speaking. They're crying out. The money is testifying against them, saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. They say, look at all the folks you had to step on so that you could have all the best things of this life. Friends, what does your wealth testify about you? Earlier we heard James tell us that we can use our tongues to bless our Father. But that will do us no good if our bank accounts are crying out to God, which incidentally James notes here. Who is listening when money talks? Who is listening when the poor cry out? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Those who employ others need to be seeking to bless them, not rob them. Those who have need to be generous with what they have. Proverbs 19.17 puts it in real good perspective. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Now, if you're thinking, well, I'm not an employer, so my money isn't talking, I would remind you that the principle is for employees as well. We don't live to see what we're able to take our employers for. We're also called to be a blessing, to be a service to others in whatever God calls us to do. Now, if you're feeling convicted and you're concerned that your money may be saying bad things about you, well, I have good news for you. If we want to overcome our sinful habits of hoarding and being greedy, there is hope. Do you remember Zacchaeus in Luke 19? Zacchaeus was a man probably equivalent to a millionaire in those days, and he had been cheating his neighbors out of money as a tax collector. Well, Zacchaeus decided to put himself in a position where he could see Jesus. He climbed a sycamore tree. And an amazing thing happened. Many children know the story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today for I'm going to your house to stay. 
the Lord found Zacchaeus. And the Lord can find you too. Jesus can find you even when you're up a tree. And Jesus knows your name. You just need to make the effort to move towards him, to put yourself in position, and Jesus will find you. And if you let Jesus enter into your life, then you'll find a new treasure that surpasses all earthly treasures. And you'll find your former treasures losing their grip on you. You know, after Jesus enters Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus says in verse 8 of chapter of Luke 19, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus decided to accept responsibility for his actions. And at the moment the money stepped down from the stand, someone else took its place. That someone else is Jesus. And Jesus began speaking. And you know what Jesus said? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. And what a wonderful thing to have an advocate with the Father, the true treasure, our Lord Jesus, who speaks a far better word than our earthly riches. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to.